passage that Ray read. It's always good to look at it to, to check that I'm not saying anything wrong. Not that I would, but it's good to check and uh, to read it. And uh, may the Lord bless us as we come now to it. <clears throat> so last week we looked at this parable of the, the bridesmaids, if you remember. And I spoke about the need to be ready for the return of the Lord Jesus. Today's parable is slightly different. Um, it has a slightly different emphasis, but it's very important that we take the words of this parable to heart. I want to start off this morning. I, I was reminiscing about my student days back in ancient history, and uh, there was this program on the telly back in the day, Countdown. Anyone remember Countdown? So I don't know if it's is it still on these days. It's still on. Wow, it's one of those uh, classic programs. When I was a student, I'd be sitting there in my one-roomed uh, bedsit with a pot noodle. Um, in the afternoon, watching Countdown. And the idea was that you had, to, you had all these letters, the contestants, they had to unscramble them and make different words. And it had, um, what's her name, Carol Vorderman was on there, and a uh, slightly chubby bloke, what was his name, Richard something? Whiteley, that's it, I think he's dead now. And in Countdown, you'd have this great big massive clock in the studio, I think they had 30 seconds, and there was a little hand on the clock that would go round and time 30 seconds. And uh, after 30 seconds, they, they found out what words they'd made in that time. I want you to imagine this morning that your life is represented by a massive great big clock. So imagine a clock up here on the screen, and there was 30 seconds, and a little hand was ticking along. Ticking along constantly towards the bottom of the clock. And those 30 seconds represented your life, the span of your life, from the moment you're born to the moment you die. The average life expectancy in this country is about 80 for men and about 82 for women. That's quite high by global standards. When you're young, 80 years seems a long time. When you're middle-aged, it doesn't seem quite so long, does it? 80 years goes very fast. Think about your life today. Think about that little hand ticking across that clock from the top to the bottom. Where would your life be at your present stage on that clock? Where would the little hand be positioned? If you're young and in your 20s or in your teens, the little hand has just gone a little way around the clock, not very far. When you're young, you're full of ambitions, full of plans. Life stretches ahead of you. It's exciting. You're building your career, finding your way in the world, making making the best of opportunities that come your way. You've got all these plans and dreams and ideas ahead of you. Life stretches before you. I can do anything I want to do. Maybe you're more like me. You're approaching your 40s. It's hard to believe, but I am. You wonder, where have all the years gone? Seemed like only yesterday I was 18, 21. What happened to those years? What happened to me in that time? And you, if you're like me, you tend to look back and you think, well, these things have gone well in my life and this went as, as I planned it when I was young and these things haven't gone to plan and my life's taken all these twists and turns and it's gone completely different, differently from how I expected in some ways. And when you're my age, you sort of look back, but you also look forward. You think, well, hopefully I've still got many years left to do things in this life. Or maybe your, your little hand is coming towards the bottom of the clock. Maybe you're in your, I don't know, 70s or 80s or maybe a bit younger, and you're looking back on your life. You're thinking about all the years. You, you're bringing up children. You're working to build your career, to put food on the table. You did all this stuff, and now you're looking not so much forward, but looking back over a lifetime and analysing where your life's gone and what you've done. But as I said, wherever you find yourself on that, on that clock, there's no doubt that life goes quickly. And life is short. That hand on the clock is constantly moving towards the finishing line. It never stops, does it? It doesn't pause. You can't pause the clock. It's always moving towards the end. When you're younger, you think you're invincible, don't you? You think you're going to live forever. You're never going to get ill. You're never going to get old. If you... You know you will one day, but you don't even think about it. You just push it to one side. But life has a habit of throwing up unexpected things, doesn't it? 
tragedy and illness. And we know in our church congregation that this is part of life. Things seem to be going well and suddenly something happens which throws a spanner in the works. And that comfortable pattern is disrupted in some way. Life is fragile. Life is brief for all of us. And if you, if you ponder it, if you consider it, you start to think, well, what is life all about? What, what does it mean, this the short span that we have in this life? Why are we here? What is the purpose of it? Does my life mean anything? Do I mean anything? Am I, do I have any significance at all as a person? Does anything I do actually count for anything worthwhile? I don't know whether you stop to ask these questions. I suspect that many people never ask them or don't want to face them. They're quite unsettling. They're quite disturbing. And I think a lot of people prefer just to live for the day, live for the moment, and put them to one side and not consider them at all. But all around us we see, don't we, people who are trapped on this treadmill, this endless, relentless treadmill of trying trying hard to find some kind of meaning and satisfaction and happiness in this life. Grasping, looking everywhere, building, trying to work to find out what is my life about? What can make me happy? What can give me significance? And I think the sad thing is, the great tragedy is that the majority of people never actually find the answer to these questions. That's why the teaching we read today is so important, so full of hope, so encouraging, because this tells us, amongst other, other teaching in the Bible, what life is about, why life is important, how you can invest your life and use your life in a way which is truly significant, rather than just frittering it away and all kinds of stuff and coming to the end of it and not knowing what it was all about. Jesus tells us here, the key to a successful life, to a truly successful life, to a meaningful life, And that's why this is so encouraging today. And I pray if nothing else today, you will take these words and you will be encouraged by them. And you will ponder them. Because people look for answers in all kinds of places. But I believe this is the answer that God has given us. Life, according to Jesus, can be full of hope. It can be full of possibility. It can be full of meaning. It's not just a pointless, you know, charade heading towards the grave. Let's look at this parable. Now, I should point out, for for those who don't know, a parable is a story that Jesus used. It was a common device he used when he was teaching to illustrate a certain point. So Jesus told stories to the people called parables, and he said, if you want to understand a particular aspect of my kingdom, or my ministry, or my life, or human life, let's compare it to this. Let's, Let's look at this aspect of everyday life. So if you want to understand the kingdom of God, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this. He tells a story to illustrate a particular point. So all the, all the points in this story represent something. All the characters represent something. And there's a meaning that we're, we're supposed to take from this story. In this story, we've got a particular rich man, a master. He's got servants, he's got a workforce, he's got staff. And he's preparing to go away on business it would be like a man going on a journey now this was written 2,000 years ago of course 2,000 years ago they didn't have the reliable transport systems that we have today to say the least you were, if you were travelling on a great journey you'd travel across the land or you'd be on a sort of rickety sort of boat on the sea and it would be a da- dangerous thing to cross the ocean or cross the Mediterranean Sea. It would be dangerous and risky, and you'd be subject to the tides and the waves. You know what it's like today when you go on a journey? You, you know full well your plane's going to arrive at Gatwick at 10.45. You'll be back in Brighton or Croydon or whatever by, by midnight. In those days, well, having said that, it's not always true, is it? But that's, that's the theory anyway. But however unreliable it is today, there were were no drones around in those days, disrupting the airport, I suppose, but however unreliable it was, it is today with airports and modern transport systems. It was far more unreliable back in the day. Because, you know, as I said, you you were reliant on boats and and all kinds of stuff like that. And in those days, there was no way of keeping in touch with people back home. Didn't have rapid mass communication. 
that we have today. So if you were away from home for a long time, you couldn't just send a message to let people know, I'm going to be delayed for a couple of days. There was no way of communicating with people. This man goes away on a journey. He goes away on business. And everybody knows that he will come back at a certain point. That's, definite, that's definitely going to happen, unless, of course, the ship sinks or something like that. But nobody knows exactly when he's going to come. Nobody can predict that. Even the man himself cannot be certain when he's going to come back. The rich man in this parable represents Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of his people, rose again from the dead. We believe that. He came alive, God raised him, and Jesus went back to heaven. He sat at the right hand of God. At the moment, Jesus is is in heaven with his Father, but Jesus promised many times that he would come again back to this world, a second time, to judge the world and to save his people. So like the man in the story, Jesus hasn't gone away forever. He's gone away for an unspecified period of time. We don't know how long he's gone away for, but we do believe his words that one day he'll come back. And Christian people are waiting for that day with anticipation and excitement. We don't know when it's going to be, but we do know it's going to happen. So the master, the rich man in this story, represents the Lord Jesus. And what about the servants in the story? Well, the master, what does he do? He, because he's going away for a long time, he won't be able to carry out his business when he's away. He entrusts some of his wealth to some of his servants. It says here he gives them a talent. I don't want you to confuse a talent here with a talent that you might have. You know, I'm a very talented, Adam, for example, a very talented pianist. Talents, we think of talents as our, as our abilities to do certain things. A talented painter, a talented pianist, whatever. These talents were units of wealth. They would have been... I don't know what it would have been, a block of precious metal or something like that. This would have been a talent, a unit of wealth which was given to the servants. And the master has one request, doesn't he? He wants his servants to put this money to use, this, this wealth to use while he's away, to invest it, to use it wisely. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because when he comes back from his journey, whenever that might be, or have some kind of return, the investment will have, will have borne some kind of dividend and he'll be able to use that to further his purposes. And so he entrusts this wealth to his reliable, he thinks they're reliable anyway, his reliable workforce to make this money work while he's away. I want you to notice how the master, the rich man, gives different servants different amounts of wealth to use. It says here, doesn't it, um, Verse 15, to one he gave five talents, quite a large sum, to another two talents, and to another just one talent. The master knew his servants. He knew them very well, and he knew that not all of them were capable of handling the same amount of wealth. So, look, the very trustworthy one, the one who was most capable, he gave five talents, and one who was also trustworthy but slightly less capable, he gave two talents. And then to one, he just gave a small amount, even though it was quite a large amount, but still smaller than the other two. And he says, guys, put this money to, to work. Use it wisely while I'm away. He doesn't actually say that in the text. That's what we can infer. That's what he expected them to do, to use it, to make a profit. He doesn't give them any more than they can handle. And he doesn't give them any less. He gives them the amount which is appropriate to their abilities. What do they do? We read, don't we? The first two servants, they waste no time in taking that money and using it, using it wisely, investing it. We don't know how they did this. Perhaps they loaned it out at interest. Perhaps they were trading with the money. I've got this image of them with this kind of freewheel van, trading out of this van, buying and selling, making a profit for the master. But however they did it, they used it. They were diligent. They worked hard to make a profit. The first two servants, the one with five talents and the one with two talents. But the third servant, what does he do? Let's look at verse um, 18. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. In those days, 
There were no banks and no safes, so if you wanted to preserve money and hide it, you would just go and dig a hole somewhere where nobody knew and bury your money in the ground. That's what this man did. And then he went away and got on with his life. If the rich man represents Jesus, who do the servants represent in the story? Well, I believe they represent professing Christians. They represent people that call themselves Christians. I spoke last week, didn't I, about the visible church. The visible church is all the people that might be gathered together on any given Sunday who profess to be Christians. We look at them, we can see, and that's why it's called the visible church. This is the church. People look at that and say, this is the church. This is a gathering of God's people. Christians are, by definition, people who serve the Lord Jesus, who follow the Lord Jesus, who obey the Lord Jesus. Last week, we looked at that parable of the bridesmaids. Jesus makes it abundantly clear, you must be ready for my return. You must be diligent. And this parable of the the talents tells us what it means to be ready. It doesn't mean just waiting around, doing nothing at all, being lazy, looking at the sky. It means to be diligent and hardworking and about our master's business. What do the talents represent in this story? I believe they represent a whole variety of resources that the Lord Jesus has given Christians to use for his kingdom, for his glory, to use during their lifetimes. I think it's difficult to make a definitive list. There are a huge number of things that are included, things that God has given us. Anything that we can use to to further the kingdom of God, to tell others about the Lord Jesus, to grow as Christians, to, to do good in the world, and to serve the purposes of the Lord Jesus, anything that can be used are included in this. So that would include, I believe, things like our time. Isn't that a precious resource, time? None of us have enough of it. It includes our money, our intellect. If if you're a clever person, God has given you a brain to use for him. Our abilities. We've all got different abilities. Our circumstances. Your life circumstances are different from mine. And your circumstances give you opportunities that I don't have to use for God. What about your contacts as well? The people that you know, that the position that God has placed you in, that's a resource that could be used for him. How are you reaching those people? What about your influence? You might be an influential person. You might, be, you might have been raised up in the workplace. You might be a manager or a boss. You might be a person that others listen to and take seriously. That's a resource that God has given you to be used for him. What about the opportunities that you have? We've all got opportunities to do good, to serve the Lord. What about the knowledge that you have? You know, over the years you might have picked up a huge amount of biblical knowledge or life knowledge or wisdom. That's a resource that God has given you to be used for him. Life experience. Your experiences that you've been through are very helpful for other people. They can be used for God if you choose to use them. What about your education? If you have got a PhD, or even if you haven't, if you've got five GCSEs, whatever it might be, that is given to you as a gift that you can use. And if you're a highly educated person, God's given you a good brain and opportunities to study. That's something that God has given you to use for him. You could just use it for yourself. Isn't it better to use it for God? You might not know how to do that. The Lord will show you. Spiritual gifts. The Bible talks about spiritual gifts that God gives us. You know, different things. The ability to serve in different ways. And let me say this as well. As Christian people, we believe that our very lives do not belong to us. My life, I am, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. My life is all about glorifying him. If you're a Christian, that's true for you as well. The reason I live and breathe is for Jesus Christ to be glorified. Every fibre of my being is to be used for him. Every moment of every day is to be used for him. doesn't mean we will have to be in full-time Christian ministry. Some are called to that, some are not. But whatever we're doing, we need to be about the Lord's business. We need to be 
if the Lord decides that the best way he can be glorified is for my life to be taken, then that, so be it. That's the way it has to be. And of course, many Christians all over the world today are giving their lives because they refuse to, to give up their faith in the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, if you want me to be glorified, you, you want to glorify your name, rather, by my death, my suffering, then so be it. I give my life to you. I pour out my life that Jesus Christ might be glorified. That's not easy to do, but that has to be the Christian heart. My life is for him. I'm a servant. I don't belong to myself. I belong to the Lord Jesus. Non-Christian people have many abilities and much time and wealth and intellect as well. Of course, they have these things as well in many cases. But of course, if you're not a Christian, you, you probably won't have any concept of using this to glorify God. If you're not aware of God and of the Lord Jesus, you'll probably use these things just for for furthering your own purposes and living your life in the best way you can, for your own happiness and self-fulfillment. But as I said, Christian people understand everything that God has given us, whatever it might be, is given to us on trust. It's not given to us to use how we please. We have choices to make, but we should be choosing to use these things for God. And every single Christian in this room has a unique set of resources and talents and gifts and opportunities that are unique to you, which should be used. To some, God has given much, and some, God has given less. We're not all equally gifted. That doesn't matter. All God asks is that we be faithful with what he has given us. But let me say this as well. To whom much has been given, from them much will be expected. If you've been given more, more opportunities, more more gifts, more talents, more money, whatever it might be, God will expect more from you than from someone who has been given less. That's a big responsibility, but also an opportunity. Question is, do do we understand this as Christian people, that we should be serving the Lord? I think we do understand it, but we need to remember it. It's important. So that was the servants. Now let's talk about the day of reckoning, the day of accounting. So in the story, verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. So one day, one awful day, one joyous day, depending on your perspective, the master returns home from his journey. The first thing he does is call his servants to him and he settles accounts with them. Let's have a look and see what you've done and how faithful you were. The first two servants, the one that had five talents, the one that was given two talents, come confidently before the master. So let's look at this. Verse 20, the man who had received the five talents brought the other five. He doubled his investment. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I've gained five more. That man was diligent. That man had worked hard and he'd invested and he'd been faithful to the master. And the master is pleased with him. He says, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. The master gives credit where it's due. He commends him. He says, well done, you've done what I asked you to do. And the man with two talents likewise was commended. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enter the joy of your master. Dear friends, this is a picture of what will happen on that great day, the last day when the Lord Jesus comes. When all professing Christians and others will be brought before him in the judgment. And all of us will be held to account for how we've used our lives as Christians. Some, many, will be commended by the Lord. You'll say, well done, you were good and faithful and you used the opportunities that I gave you to serve me diligently in my kingdom. And these people, like these servants, will be commended. They'll be rewarded with more responsibility in the kingdom to come. If you're faithful in a few things, you can be trusted with much. If you're not faithful even in a few things, you won't be trusted with greater things. And these Christians that have been faithful will be welcomed into the joy of their master in the kingdom. But there also will be some, I believe, professing Christians, people that call themselves Christians, who are like the third 
third servant in the story, the one that went and buried his talent in the ground. Look at verse 24. What does he say to his master? He doesn't present his gains, his interest, but he makes this rather insulting little speech to the master. What does he say? Master, he said, I know that you are a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. You can imagine him dumping it on the table right in front of the master. Here's what belongs to you. How disrespectful. Can you imagine talking to your boss like that? Your boss sets you a task, goes away on other business, comes back and you say, I didn't obey you, I didn't do what you said because I was afraid of you because you're a hard boss, you're severe, so I haven't done it, but that's okay. What would you expect your boss to say to you if you did that? Not only had this man, this servant, disobeyed his master, but he had an incredibly cynical and negative view of his master. He calls him, you're a severe man, you're a hard man. You're the kind of person that takes what doesn't belong to you. You're a profiteer. You go around taking other people's crops. Someone's got a nice crop of grain, you go and take it for yourself, even though you haven't worked for it. It's calling him a thief. It's calling him somebody who takes advantage and exploits other people. Somebody who, rather than rewarding his servants, is more likely to exploit them and mistreat them. I don't know about you, but when I read about this master, this rich man, I don't think he comes across as a harsh man. I don't think he comes across as a hard man. I think he comes across as a generous man, a fair man, who rewards endeavour and hard work. But for some reason, this third servant had this, this negative view of him. He was afraid of him, afraid to invest his money, afraid to obey him. The other two servants were faithful. They loved the master. They had affection for him. They they wanted to please him. The third servant had no respect for him and no affection for him. As we would expect, the master was not best pleased. His response to that third servant was extremely different from the first two servants. What does he say? You wicked, lazy servant. At the very least, he could have put the money in the bank. Not there was a bank. They had people who borrowed, borrowed money and lent money. He could have given them the money. He could have got a little bit of interest for the master. There would have been some return. He didn't even do that. He just went and hid it in the ground. This man professed to be a servant, but he wasn't willing to serve. He wasn't living up to the calling he professed. As the master says, he was a wicked, useless, worthless servant. And he was thrown out on his ear. He was kicked out of the house, expelled from the household, relieved of his position, because he wasn't even doing what he was called to do. Dear friends, the lesson lesson of this parable is not rocket science. But it's important that we understand this correctly. This shows us that on the day of judgment, Christians, professing Christians, will be judged in a way, and I want you to hear me and understand me, by their works. And you might be saying, hang on a minute, I thought we were saved by faith. By faith in Christ alone. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by believing in the Lord Jesus and trusting in his death on the cross. And that's absolutely true. But we will still be judged by our works. When people hear the term being judged by their works, automatically the self-righteous human mind has this idea of somehow... God being, you know, the day of judgment, God being like a, um, having a big pair of scales and putting your good deeds on one side, the good things that you've done, and the bad things you've done on the other side and weighing them up and seeing which, which is greater, the good deeds that you've done or the bad deeds. And if you talk to, to Muslim people, I, I talk to Muslims quite a lot on the street, and often they'll, they'll have an idea of God's judgment being like that. Somehow God will weigh up my good and bad deeds on the, on the, on the day of judgment. Somehow he will see that I've tried my best and I've done the prayers and I've given to the poor and somehow God will forgive me because he's merciful. And that's the, the idea that you come across so often. People have this idea that God is a judge like that. When we talk about judging by works, he weighs up the good and the bad and sees which is greater. Because many people are self-righteous, they think that probably I'm a good person, so I've done enough good deeds to go to heaven, and God will look at me, I've never done any harm, and therefore God will let me in. 
But friends, this is not what the Bible teaches. You know what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches clearly that all people have broken God's laws. We've all broken God's commands. Each one of us has gone astray. Nobody is good enough to be saved by good works. You can never do, I can never do enough good things to outweigh the bad I've done. One sin, one act of disobedience is enough to separate us from God. The way God judges us worthy of salvation is not to weigh up our good and bad deeds and see which is greater. All of us are unworthy. All of us are sinful. All of us have broken God's commands. But the Christian message, the gospel, is this. That because of his great love for us, the Lord God himself sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to die on the cross. To take the punishment on himself for all human sins, the penalty that we deserve. And Jesus lived a perfect life. Because of that, he could be a substitute for us. He could die in our place. He took that punishment that we deserve for breaking God's law. And the good news is, this is a free gift. Anyone that believes in Jesus, to put their trust in him, receives the gift of salvation. God declares them right. He takes away the penalty of sin because Jesus has taken it on himself. I want you to hear this very clearly today. Salvation is a gift, a free gift. It's taken by faith, received by faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be saved. No matter what you've done, that's how people are saved. Not by trying to be good and trying to earn something from God. It's impossible. But let me say this as well. When somebody truly puts their faith in the Lord Jesus, a great change takes place in their hearts. The Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, comes and changes a person. It gives them a new heart and a new nature. And that person no longer is a rebel against God, but is somebody who, who loves the Lord. And his greatest or, he, or her greatest desire is to please the Lord and to serve the Lord because I'm grateful that my Jesus died for me. And I'm, I want to spend the rest of my life, I can't envisage anything better than spending my life serving him in his kingdom and doing his work because he's, he's a good and a glorious master. And I want to, to please him in every way I can. Not because I can earn anything from him, because he's already done everything for me. He saved me by grace. He died for me. Because of that, I belong to him. I'm his servant and his child and his friend. I want to glorify him, to obey him. If he says it, I will do it. If you're not, not a Christian, on the day of judgment, according to the Bible... On that final day when the Lord Jesus comes, if you're not putting your trust in his finished work on the cross, saying, I can't save myself, you, you, only you can save me, Lord. If you're not trusting in that, you very sadly will be judged guilty and there'll be no questions asked. Because you're not trusting in the way that God has given us, the only way to be saved. And if you're not a Christian, the first thing to do is to get right with God, to be reconciled to God, to come to the Lord Jesus and say, I cannot save myself, save me. And he will. But I want to also warn Christians here today and encourage Christians here today, because it's not all about warning. There's a warning, but there's also an encouragement as well. We'll all stand before the Lord, we'll have our lives examined. We'll be judged by our works in the sense that the Lord will look at us and see if there was any evidence of true Christian faith. Later on in this chapter, we find uh, Jesus talks about the judgment, and he describes it as being two groups of people being separated, the sheep and the goats. The unrighteous and the righteous being separated on the judgment day. On the surface, you could read this, and you could think that somehow this means that people will be saved by doing good works that the sheep were, were doing good and therefore the Lord let them into the kingdom. But that's not true. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is this, that if you truly are a Christian, born again by the Holy Spirit, good works will naturally flow from you. There will be evidence in your life to show this on that day. The Lord will look at you and he, there, there will be evidence to show that you truly were following him, that you loved him, that you were born again. In the Bible, those who claim to be Christians but show no, no evidence of change, no evidence of devotion, no evidence of 
obedience, those people will be shown on that day to be, to be not Christians at all, no matter what their profession. Jesus says, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not, only, not those who just say the words who are right, but those who truly obey the Lord Jesus. When we talk about our good works being judged, it's not because good works make us right with God. They can't earn our salvation, but they do show the reality or not of our faith. Did we, did we serve Christ? Did we take his command seriously? Or did we go and bury, as it were, the talent he gave us in the ground? Did we use our best efforts, our time, our money, our talents, whatever it might be, to serve ourselves, to please ourselves? Or did we use them for the Lord? That will be the test on that day when the Lord brings us together to look at our lives and say, is there evidence of true saving faith? There's a particular danger, let me, let me say this, there's a particular danger of nominal Christianity where people call themselves Christians, but there's no real change, no real desire to serve the Lord. And that's particularly prevalent in some cultures. I think 50 years ago in this country, most people would have called themselves Christians. They were Anglicans, some were Catholics, and they were christened in church, and they grew up believing themselves to be Christians because everybody was Christians. And in some cultures today, that's still the case. And I think uh, I know best of all the Ukrainian culture, 99% of Ukrainians will call themselves Christians. They belong to the Russian or the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. They're christened as babies. They're told they've entered that church. And they all believe they're Christians. They believe they're going to heaven. No matter that the vast majority of people do not attend a church service or show any real desire or willingness to serve God in any way or to obey the basic commands of Scripture. I think that's probably true in many Catholic countries as well, and also in countries where there's a Protestant denomination such as Lutheranism or some other kind of um, state Christianity. There's a terrible danger if your cultural identity is wrapped up in some form of Christianity. And you believe, because I'm Italian or whatever it might be, or, or anything, Ukrainian, Russian, that somehow I'm naturally part of a, of a Christian community, even though there's no evidence. What about other people, though, who are in this kind of evangelical setting? I believe I've, I've, people have told me in, in America, the United States, this is a problem, where people may have made a commitment or put a hand up or repeated a prayer at some rally 40 years ago and say, have said, I, I'm a Christian, I profess to be a Christian, I want to follow the Lord Jesus, but in the 40 years since then, there's no evidence of any true desire to serve and follow the Lord Jesus. What about in this country? You may have been on some alpha course. You know this alpha course all churches do, many churches do. You've been there, you made a commitment, you, you said, said some prayers and made a promise, filled in a card. You know the stuff people do. That's all very well, but where, where is the evidence since then that you were truly born again, that you truly repented, that you truly understood the gospel? That was like me, dear friends. Throughout my teenage years, I grew up in a Christian home, Called myself a Christian, had a kind of head faith, but you know, it made no difference to my life. Absolutely no difference at all. My heart, my affections were a million miles away from the Lord Jesus. I spent my time, my money, my efforts on pleasing myself, not on the Lord Jesus. And by his grace, when I was 20, the Lord did a glorious change in me and brought me into true Christian faith, true repentance. I give him the glory for that. I wasn't seeking him, he sought me. I'm not suggesting that since then I've always given all my, my efforts to serving the Lord. We all fall short. But I will say this, the course of my life was changed. And I beg you, if, you, if this is you, if you're caught up in this kind of nominal Christianity where you, you say all the right things, come out of it, believe in the Lord Jesus. Repent and turn to him. Turn away from yourself, turn to him and ask him to change you. On that day of judgment, many people will be trusting in their church affiliation. Oh, I was an Orthodox. I was a Protestant. I came to Calvary Church. Christian subculture. The profession I once made years ago to save me. 
as I said, it's not the people that say the name of the Lord, Lord, Lord. It's the people that obey him, that show themselves truly to be Christians. Once again, I don't want you to lose today the encouragement of these verses with the warning. There is a warning, but there's also an encouragement. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you were to reach the end of your life and hear Jesus saying to you, the Lord Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. Rather than just frittering away your life as, as a professing Christian and all kinds of nonsense, using your time unwisely, using your money unwisely, use, wasting opportunities, not using the contacts that God has given you, not using the influence that God has given you, wouldn't it be a shame for that to happen? Wouldn't it be wonderful if you used those things wisely and well and invested them in the kingdom? You're saved by grace. And yet, the Lord has a special commendation, special praise for those that have served faithfully. You can invest your life in something that really matters, in the kingdom of God, which will last forever. His dominion and kingdom, there is no end. Invest your life in that. Some of you may think, well, being a Christian is about going to church and singing hymns every Sunday, and it sounds awfully boring. Many people seem to have this idea of Christianity, you know, that's just a very tedious thing. Going to church, let me say this to you. Being a Christian, if you truly understand it, is the greatest cause in the world. And to be a Christian is to give your life for something which is the greatest cause for the greatest king, the greatest master, fair and a good master. To give your life for something that truly matters. What a tragedy to fritter it away and waste it. What a tragedy as Christian people who should know better. A bit of practical teaching for you. If you are a Christian and you do love the Lord Jesus, it's worth thinking about your life, taking stock and saying, how am I using the talents that God has given me? Every Christian, without exception, has some opportunities to serve the Lord. Whatever your circumstances, you might be laid up in a hospital bed, you might be living in a care home. You can't get out. Whatever, whatever it is, you have some opportunities to serve the Lord with the days that you have left. A few examples. If you're a parent with young children, as I am, how can you order your family life so that you can best serve the Lord? Are you working hard to bring up your children in a God-honouring way? That would be an example of investing in the kingdom. I'm going to give my best efforts and I'm going to give my best, the best of my days to bring up my children. I can't make them Christians, but I can teach them the word of God. Many people don't think like that at all. That Christian person, that is your duty. That is a God-given responsibility and a privilege to invest your life in bringing up children. Or, if you haven't got children, what about the children in the church? Invest in them. That's the kingdom investment, if you have the opportunities to do that. If you're a student at university, what opportunities do you have, unique opportunities as a student or at school or at college? How can you use your energy? When you're younger, you have more energy, I believe. How can you use it for God's glory? Are you just going to kind of fritter it away on your own agenda? I've met students who use their time so wisely. They're involved in the Christian union, they're involved in the church, and others who seem to be completely distracted and just I, I, I get that it's hard being a student isn't it you've got to write a dissertation you've got to study but God shouldn't come last when you, you, can, you can write your dissertation to the glory of God as well you can be a good student to the glory of God you know when, when I, I was at university when I became a Christian the first year I was absolutely lazy when I became a Christian I realised I have to work hard study hard because it glorifies God to do that laziness doesn't glorify God If you're a young mother, you know, you've got your preschool kids, how can you use your opportunities for the gospel? You know, go to preschool, praying for opportunities to talk about the Lord Jesus. You are an ambassador for Christ. Perhaps nobody else in your church can do what you can do. We have to change our mindset, don't we, to think, what can we do for the Lord? What's the Lord calling us to do? If you have a position of influence at work, how can you use it to spread Christian values in the business environment? One of my dear friends is a social worker 
He's the only Christian in the office. Another of my friends works for the YMCA, likewise, the only Christian. Man of influence in some ways. But he has the unique opportunities to spread the gospel and to spread Christian values in that place. If the Lord has blessed you with finances, financial provision, you've got money in the bank, that's a blessing. That money is not yours to use how you please. That money is given to you on trust from God. How are you going to use it to best serve the kingdom of God? Just worth thinking about, worth praying about. Stop regarding stuff as our own. Thinking this is the Lord's. Think about, think about imagine an elderly couple that want to go on a, a cruise around the world. Nothing wrong with going on a cruise. Go and enjoy it. God gives us good things to enjoy. But if you're spiritually minded, this couple is spiritually minded, how would they think about it? This cruise is given to me as a blessing. I want to go on this cruise and use it for the Lord's glory somehow. Please give me opportunities to share the gospel with my fellow passengers on the ship. Please help me to be salt and light in that place. As Christian people, we're never off duty. You don't, you're not Christian, you know, 9 to 5 on Monday to Friday and at the weekend or vice versa on Sunday. You're never off duty as Christians. I'm not suggesting we have to always be talking all the time about the things of God. We, we look for opportunities. We don't want to be annoying to people. Some of us can be. It's because we care, isn't it? We want people to hear the gospel. But think spiritually about these things. God hasn't just given me this just for my own enjoyment. Yes, we can enjoy it, but more than that, let's use it for the glory of God. If you've got a higher education, as I've said already, how might you use that for the Lord? If you speak a foreign language, some people have got gifts of, of languages, the ability to speak. You know, it's difficult, isn't it, to learn a foreign language? If you can speak a foreign language, how might you use that for the gospel? If you can play a musical instrument or you've got a lovely singing voice, how might you use that? If you've got IT skills or administrative skills, how can you use that to build up the church? If you've got a lovely big house, how might you use that for the gospel, for the church? If you've got free time during the week, a couple of free days, how might you use that to serve the Lord? How can you use, it's just examples, how can you use these things to, to build up the church, to glorify God, to do good in the world, and to spread the gospel? And let me say this as well. As Christians, we know that the, the, the local church, meeting together in places like this, is central to God's purposes. It's very important that as Christians we support the local church in some way. Serving the Lord goes well beyond church ministry. It includes the whole of life, but it, it certainly includes church ministry. If you want to serve in the church in some way, if you've got gifts and opportunities, come and speak to us. We'll be happy to try and help you discern what the Lord might have given you to use for his glory. But as I said, this parable is not saying that everybody should go into full-time Christian ministry. We don't believe in that. That's nonsense. We don't have a class of people, professional Christian workers and others who are not. We don't have the clergy. We're all in full-time Christian ministry and service. I've got a friend in London, Wesley. He's a very good Christian man. He's a bus driver. Drives his bus around the east end of London. But he's a bus driver for the Lord. <coughs> Prays every day. Give me opportunities in the canteen to speak of you to my Muslim colleagues and others. Help me to do a good job. Drive safely. People might notice my cheerful attitude and ask about the hope that I have. And then in his spare time, he gets home absolutely exhausted. And he'll be out evangelizing. He does street evangelism and all kinds of stuff, serving in the church. That's a man that I could follow. That's a man that I could admire and learn from. God hasn't called him to give up his job. He's still a bus driver. He may always be a bus driver. Before that, he was a, he was, he was a courier. Before that, he was something else. But he's a bus driver for the Lord. And it's important, isn't it? He's using the opportunities that God has given him. This parable is not saying that we, we need to all run around frantically like headless chickens. Frantically engaged in Christian ministry. What can I do? It's, it's good to have that attitude, isn't it? Of looking for ways to serve. But we're not called just to kind of feel guilty 
and fill up our days with this frantic activity which is not sanctioned by God. What I think we need to do is just look at the opportunities that God has given us and say, how can I be faithful? Perhaps we do need to be doing more in some ways. But what we need more is a mind change, isn't it? A heart change. Not necessarily activity in doing more, but this desire, this, this Christian way of looking at the world, looking at my finances, looking at my, my home, looking at my days, my hours. I also want to say this as well, just to finish up. Your service to the Lord may not seem flashy or dynamic or public. You might think, well, what I do is very insignificant, very small compared to some people. Not everybody is called to public ministry, ministry which is publicly recognised. Not everybody is called to change the world. We can't all be like these great preachers, Billy Graham or Spurgeon or whoever it might be. We're not all called to be like them. We are called to be faithful. You know what, friends? This, this parable reminds us the Lord is aware of people who serve him quietly in the background and get on with what he's called them to do. Cleaning out the toilets. Something very mundane, which nobody else sees. If you do that for the Lord, because you love him, because you want to, to add value to the church and serve other people, that is precious to God. You will be commended. God will not forget these things. Once we regarded our lives, didn't we, as our own property. My life is mine, I can do what I like, it belongs to me. I make my own choices, I'm I'm master of my own destiny. But now, as Christian people who know the Lord, we realise, don't we, that we're always on duty. We're always about his business. Always working in his service. And if we're aware of this, if we're aware that everything we do is serving the Lord... Isn't it amazing how it can transform the most mundane life? You might think your life is very pointless and boring and mundane, but actually, if you're serving the Lord with the best that you have, it really transforms you know, that bus journey to work in the morning. I'm going to serve the Lord today. I'm not just an insignificant nobody. I'm a child, a servant of the King, and he's commissioned me to go about his business. sensitivity and openness a willingness to be used Lord I'm your servant one day I'll need to give account for my life I do love you I want others to know about you I want to do the things that please you that's the greatest desire of my heart please Lord show me what you would have me do help me to do it with all my heart this parable reminds us doesn't it once again that there will be that judgement Professing Christians, the Lord will look at our works. We will not be saved by our works, but the works that we do will be evidence of true salvation. And I pray there will be no one here who on that day stands there, who knew all the truth, you heard all these things, you didn't obey, you didn't obey your master. Remember the little hand moving across the clock. Life doesn't last forever, does it? Jesus has come back. We, we need to be ready. We need to be about his business. We need to be serving him. Let's pray and then we'll sing our final hymn.